I want to encourage you to just take a look at uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12 this morning. We're going to read through to verse uh, 17 and then just look at this this letter that Jesus writes to the church um, at the city of Pergamon um, uh, for just a few minutes. Let's go ahead and read together. Well, I'll read it and you can follow along. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols, by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who told to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Father, once again, as we look to your word, we pray that your spirit will encourage us. Encourage us not um, as we are, but encourage us as you have us to be. To aspire to the greatness of conforming to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we hear the written word, that we will see the living word, and that in him we will be made new, and in him we will be made strong, and in him we will move forward together. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The city of Pergamon um, is an important city, and I there's... There's a statement that appears twice there, and so I want to I explain it so that we can get into it. You notice that it says that Pergamon is the city where um, Satan dwells. Well, I want to show you where he lives. Doug, you want to put up his house? Right there. Now, this ironically is in Berlin. Um, but this is an altar um, to, that was stood on the Acropolis of Pergamon. Um, and don't be scared by that word, Acropolis. Acropolis is just Greek for big, big tall place. Um, acro means high, polis means city, highest point in the city. And at the highest point of a city, you would build temples and things and, and that kind of stuff. And on the Acropolis of Pergamon sat this giant altar. Um, now you can't, if you, you can kind of see the people way in the back, you can see how big this altar is. And around the, the sides of it um, are what's called a meganarchy, a, a depiction of the battle of Zeus, the king of the Greek gods, with chaos and the titans, the, the ancient gods. And this is an establishment of how the Greek gods came to power. Well, this is called um, the throne of Zeus. Uh, that's what it was called. Now, it's in Berlin right now. Um, a German engineer in the 1800s took it apart brick by brick and, uh, or block by block and transported it to Berlin, Berlin put it on an island, and they built a, a, um, a museum around it. You can still see it. It's in Berlin. Um, but this, this was the throne of Satan. This is what he's talking about. So when you read this passage and it says, I know where you live, where Satan dwells. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about this altar. Well, why? 
Does he bring this altar up? Why bring that up? There are temples in plenty of other ancient cities. Um, well, the reason is that this particular temple, this particular altar, as it were, and there's a whole section behind it you can't see, and there was a courtyard that was built around it, um, was the center of the worship of the Greek god Dionysus, or Bacchus. Um, when you worshipped Zeus, there were several different ways that you worshipped the Greek gods, but every once in a while you had a Dionysian celebration. Dionysius was the god of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. That's what he was. He was the party god. Um, and every once in a while, in Pergamon, a couple times a year, they threw a huge party where you came and you got drunk and you fornicated to your heart's content in worship of your god. That's what you did. Greeks knew how to party, right? Um, that's what they did. And there's a church in this city. There's a church. There's a, there's a gathering of believers in this city. Now, to put it into a modern context, the best way to put this is Pergamon was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. What happens in Pergamon stays in Pergamon. Um, that was what was going on in this city. And so when you read this passage, when you read these statements, read that in that context. When it says, when Jesus says in verse 13, you remain true to my name. He says, yet you remain true to my name. And the next line, this translation puts it weird. In Greek, it's actually my faith. You did not renounce my faith, not your faith in me, but my faith, the possessive there, that it was the faith of Jesus who is writing this letter, that it is his name and his faith, even in the days when Antipas, which by the way is a Greek name, um, my faithful witness was killed in the city where Satan lives. Now we don't know what happened, but the indication seems to be that this guy, whatever happened, that this guy was killed in the courtyard of this altar. And he was killed where Satan lives. Whether there was a mob or there was something went on, we don't know what happened, but something happened that this guy, Antipas, was killed where Satan lives, in this courtyard. All right? And this courtyard, I can show you other pictures. The courtyard is it's next to the amphitheater and the, the agora, what would have been the equivalent of the mall and um, all this stuff. It's, it's, it's in this general area. But he says, you stayed faithful. So, so here we go, right? We've talked about this. If you've been with us, we've said that there are seven churches in Revelation and there are two good, two bad, and three ugly. So at the beginning, this looks like this is one of the good churches. But then Jesus uses a big word for but. He says, nevertheless, which translates roughly in English to, but I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold, number one, to the teaching of Balaam, all right, or Balaam, who taught, and in case you didn't know what that teaching was, he taught Balak to entice the Israelites or the sons of Israel to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. So that's an allusion to the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. right? Numbers 21 through 24, I think it is. Likewise, you also have those who hold to, number two, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It says, repent, therefore. So he says, here's the thing. You've been true to my name and my faith, all right, you've held true to those things even in the face of death, but the thing I have against you is that you have among you these two teachers, 
these two who hold to these views. Well, what was the sin of Balaam or Balaam? Um, if you go back in Numbers and you read it, what happens is that um, the king of Moab, Balak, he is looking for somebody to curse Israel. And so he summons this prophet, Balaam, and he says to him, I want you to curse Israel. But his problem is every time he opens his mouth, what comes out of his mouth is a blessing, not a curse. And Balak gets really mad. Balak is like, no, you do it the right way. And Balaam goes, fine, I'll do it the right way. And he opens his mouth and he gives a blessing to the people of Israel. And Balak is furious. And what seems to happen, and Balaam appears elsewhere in, in the scriptures, this sin is not unknown in the Hebrew scriptures, what he comes up with is a solution which is an, a, an end around. He says, well, I can't curse them. So what you've got to do is you've got to get them to do stuff that will get God to curse them. Get them to do some other things. And, and according to this and other places, what he gets them to do is eat meat offered to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, um, Numbers chapter 25, there is uh, the, one of these stories that I loved as a middle, middle school student, as a high school student, where the people of Israel are they're, they're in the process of doing all of those things. And there's uh, one of the, the men of Israel is um, in a tent with a Moabite woman doing the latter of the list. All right? And um, one of the sons of the priest gets so, is so furious at this violation of God that he runs in with a spear and he sticks them both to the ground. All right, um, and and there's that was that's a story that teenage boys love. All right, anytime a boy says the Bible's not interesting, just take him to that passage. All right, it's just this this incredibly forceful moment. And and Balaam, his sin, it seems that his sin was the ability to distract the people of Israel from from what God wanted them to do. They don't abandon the name of God because Balaam couldn't get himself to curse them. He couldn't get it out of his mouth. They're still following the name of God. They're still doing all the right things, but there's just this little distraction off to the side. Now the other group, we have no idea who they are or what they did. Um, The Nicolaitans. The indication uh, from an early church source, a guy named Irenaeus, is that, um, that they practiced some form of free love hippie life okay Um, that they were kind of um, they did whatever but there's also this indication that it may be their name Nicolaitan is a very bizarre word name it's based on the two Greek words Nikos which means victory or rule and Laos which means people Um, and it may be that it is it was a a um, a controlling manipulative um, cult all right, a, a personality cult of, of this one guy who was controlling this group within the church. But either way, whatever was going on with that heresy and whatever was going on with this, um, what, what Jesus says to the church is very interesting. He says to them, deal with them. He says, I have something against you that you have tolerated these two divisive forces in the church. And, and you sit there and think, why would they have tolerated those divisive powers? Why would they have tolerated the, the teachings of Balaam? Why would they have tolerated the teachings of the Nicolaitans? Why, why allow that in the church? And the only solution that you can have is that they were too concerned that if they lost them, that they wouldn't have 
um, the, the, they wouldn't have the power of the church, that the church would fall apart. Well, we can't, we can't let them go off and do their own thing. We've got to keep them in. And so they were trying to hold it together and probably doing their best to try to get these people who are teaching Balaam and these, these people who are teaching the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, they're, they're trying to get them back to orthodoxy. You know, well, we can keep them in and we can just kind of teach them over. You know, we can kind of get them to to believe we you know we can have this and it's my experience that someone who holds to a divisive position they will influence others rather than be influenced all right they will they will tend to they're going to tend to draw people who have no stake in this and are are don't really understand they will tend to draw people into their niche and so this church is being torn apart by these teachers of Balaam and these teachers of the Nicolaitans and so um Jesus says, I have something against you. And then he says to the church, he says, repent. Um, now, the word repent in Greek, um, it means it means to lay down your arms. It's actually the, their word for surrender. Um, most most people think of repent, we think of it, we charge it with a religious sense. Um, but, um, but if you were in a war in ancient Greek, um, you would use this term, you would, you would say, I, I'm, I'm done, I'm finished. I'll follow you. I'll be. I'll, I'll serve you. And that's that's what's being said here. Um, when he says repent, he's not saying, oh, get down on your hands and knees and say, oh God, I'm so sorry. I never meant that to do. He's saying abandon this position and take a new one. Surrender that that role. Surrender that place and take my position. Follow me. Repent. All right. Um, and that's what's being said. He says repent or Jesus delivers the speech that all of us who have children have delivered at one point or another while driving down the road, don't make me come back there. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He says, if you do not come, look at what he says in verse 16, repent otherwise, I will soon come to you. And I will make war with them. Now, war with you? Will he make war with the, the, the people that are faithful? That's not what he says. He says, I will come to you and I will make war with them with the sword that comes out of my mouth, which he's talking about the scriptures. It's a reference to the, the sword. Double-edged sword is a reference to the power of, of the, the word. And this is a very, very... For me, it's kind of a terrifying notion to think that if you if you allow things like the teaching of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans in the church. And not necessarily, it, this is not necessarily a single congregation, but rather this is a regional church in the city. There are probably lots of assemblies that compose this. But, but in allowing this to go on, Jesus says, if I have to come, there's going to be war. I'm going to come to you and there's going to be war. Now the scary thing about that is, that it says that sometimes there is conflict in the church because Jesus is weeding out the problems. That terrifies me. You know, that terrifies me that, that, that God might do that in the church. And yet, and yet my experience over the last few years of being a pastor, and of course my entire life being a pastor's kid, is that there are times that God wants to weed things out. Now, sometimes it's, a, it's actually a beneficial thing. Sometimes he takes a group of people that believe a certain thing that's not, uh, it's not a doctrinal thing, it's just a different thing, and he takes them and he, he pulls them out of a church and he, he establishes them as their own congregation and they flourish and it's cool, it's great. 
There are other times that it's just flat-out war, and it's it's terrible. And on one side, there are groups of people who, who are standing for the Word of God, and on the other side, there are groups of people standing for other doctrines and other beliefs and other ideas, and, and they're at war. And and sometimes it, it, it's, a, it, it, it's a culture thing, sometimes it's a language thing, sometimes it's a doctrine thing. But these things will happen... And what Jesus says, really, I think what Jesus is saying to the church is be aware of what's going on in your midst so that this doesn't get more painful than it has to be. Because when something like this happens, when a teacher, um, and, and we're not dealing with specifics in our lives, but just looking at this principle, when a teacher starts to assemble a, 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 a clique, a, a, a gathering, and those people have connections to everyone else in that church, in that regional church. There are connections and things, and then God has to bring war. Jesus has to bring war into the church. Guess what happens? Good people get hurt in innocent relationships with people that are going the wrong direction. And so his warning to the church is, don't get caught on off guard on this. Don't allow this to enter into your scenario, because what will happen, and we'll see in the next... In, in, uh, in, um, in the church, yeah, in the next church in Theatira, they actually allow these people to become leaders in the church. They're not just influencers, but they're leaders. And and Jesus actually describes them. It describes it as a bed of adultery um, that that they have been so let off. So this this tells me, in, in as we read the scriptures, it it should give us a caution and an encouragement that as we are faithful to the Lord. There are going to be influences that are going to come at us. There are going to be teachings. There are going to be doctrines. There are going to be concepts. There are going to be ideas. There are going to be plans. There are going to be programs. There are going to be all of these things that come at us as a church. And if we are not founded, not just superficially on name and faith, but we actually allow that, that belief, that doctrine, to filter down and control our practices... Those people are going to oppose not us, but Jesus. But if we elevate our thinking and our attitudes and we say our church and we take the focus off of it being about Christ and those people generate, then it becomes against us. When they get down into there, then it becomes a personal thing. And then it becomes bad. Then it becomes hard. You know, um, my my mother and I were having a conversation this morning about my daughter. She's she's eight, going on uh, eighteen, and uh, she she told me the other day that when she learns to drive, she'll I won't have to drive anymore. Um, I'm like, yeah, because my car will be gone. I'll be on my bike. Uh, but the the uh, she and I were we were talking a little bit about my daughter and how eventually she will she will start dating and you know a lot of fathers are terrified by that they're like oh my daughter she's gonna start liking boys yeah that that's how the race is perpetuated you know um, you know I don't know if this shocks you but that's how the kid came in the first place uh, but uh, we we're we we're looking at it and we're going you know one day my daughter she's gonna start to like boys and she's gonna be interested in all this stuff and, and you know how easy it is as a parent to you see that 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 your daughter start to like the wrong boy. Um, uh, you know, in, in many of our cases, every boy is a wrong boy. Um, but, but um, you know, it, it's a guy that, 
and we're, and we're talking when they're older, not, not when they first start getting all googly-eyed, but, um, you know, they're in, their eight, they're in their late teens, early 20s, and they're starting to date, and, and you're looking at that, and you go, you go well, I don't want to hurt my daughter's feelings um, by telling her that her boyfriend is a complete and utter bum, um, and will probably wind up either dead or in prison, um, you know, because she'll be offended, uh, you know, and, and the principle here applies there. See, when you allow that, that false teaching, that false culture, I'm just using this as an illustration, you allow that in there and you don't deal with it because you say, well, you know, it's just better that we not deal with it. It's better, it will keep the peace, right? The church is not about keeping the peace. The church is not about compromising enough that everybody is happy. That's not what the church is. The church is about Jesus Christ. It's about honoring him and honoring his word. And, and my daughter dating a boy is not about whether she likes him or not. That's immaterial. You say, that's so harsh. Well, it's true. My wife, I don't really care whether she likes me. I want her to love me. And I want her to love me. And you guys are all thinking, oh, how are you going to dig out of that? I want her to love me because when she looks at me, she sees someone who is following Christ. I don't want her to like me because I'm, I, I, she, I don't want her to tolerate me. I want her to love me because she sees someone who is trying to follow Christ. And I want my daughter to find a man who is going to provide for his family. He is going to take care of her. He is going to help her raise her children. But most importantly, that he is going to follow Christ at all costs. And we as a church, we should think that way. We as parents, we should think that way. And we should have the difficult conversations. Because if you don't, the followers of Balaam and the followers of the Nicolaitans, they get in and they develop a fellowship and innocent people develop relationships with them because they don't know any better. And then when God comes to deal with the situation, it's going to be a lot of hurt people. I don't want my daughter to be in a situation where her husband or her boyfriend or her whatever has hurt her because I didn't speak up. And we should not want the church, um, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about our local congregation, I'm talking about the region, I'm talking about all of the Christian friends and fellows that we have in our world. We should not let the church be hurt and broken because we won't speak up about the things that will break it apart, that will divide it. I'm infamous for going into Christian bookstores with people and see people saying, well, this looks like a good book, and I'm going, it's crap. Now, now you say, pastors aren't supposed to talk like that. Well, the reality is, the Apostle Paul referred to, referred to bad doctrine and false ideas. He had some pretty strong terminology, and he said that the works of man are refuse and trash and should never be touched, that they are, they are vile and disgusting. He actually refers to false teaching at one point. He calls it a gangrenous, cancerous mass that needs to be cut out. We need to be aggressive... Speaking in love, but we need to be aggressive about our attitude toward whether we are following Christ or not. And we need to weed out those who will influence and influence us and distract us into other things. Because somebody can still say they can still follow Jesus and still take Jesus' name and still follow Jesus' faith and be distracted by all of this stuff. So we as, as parents, we as husbands... We as wives, we as leaders, we as Christians, we have an obligation to those who are innocent, who will be caught between, to call a spade a spade. To live the way that we should live. 
I'll close with this one statement. And Doug Wilcox knows about this conversation because it took place while he was in the van. Um, years ago, we were going down to Virginia. Actually, we were driving back. And we were having a conversation, Rod Gagnon, uh, Doug Wilcox, and I, in a van for eight hours at a time, bad idea. Um, Doug is a planner. He likes to plan out everything about his trip, how long it'll take him to get there, where he goes. Rod and I like to get in a car, point the vehicle in a certain direction, and hope that we wind up there at some time. Um, so, so there for a while, we drove Doug a little bit nuts. He didn't know that I actually had a GPS and I was following it. I kept it out of sight and, and all this stuff. But um, we, were, we were driving back. It was the middle of the night. And we were talking about a period in, um, in ministry in which I just had become angry and surly and, and mean and was doing stupid things. Um, and there's nothing worse than an angry, surly hobbit. And, um, we, were, and we, were, we were talking about this. We were having this conversation. And I said, I made the statement. I said, well, I said I was angry. I was depressed. I was frustrated. I didn't know where I was going. And Rod Gagnon, if you haven't met Rod, Rod is, is um, an interesting guy. He lives in Colorado now. But Rod is driving. And it's the middle of the night. We're in Pennsylvania somewhere. And he's driving. And he goes like this. He, he, he took his hand off the wheels and he looked at me <laughs> like this. And, I, and I, first of all, I'm freaking out. And he goes, I'm glad you said that because you were driving me insane. And then he got back on the... And I looked at him. I said, Rod, why didn't you say anything to me then? You say, well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. You know, sometimes we have to be willing to do these things. Now, this is not open season uh, or anything like that. I'm not I'm like, all right, everybody, take your comment cards and write everything that's wrong with Eric. That's what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we need to be aware and we need to be willing to speak. Now, in the church that operates a certain way, we, we have leaders, we have elders that God has called and gifted and appointed that there's a proper way that things should be dealt with. But in our families, we need to be handling to have those difficult conversations. Moms and dads, you need to be sitting and talking about what are your opinions of your children dating when they're four, five, six years old. You need to be thinking about that already. Grandparents, you need to be thinking about what your role will be in your grandchildren's lives. Um, husbands, wives, you need to be aware and constantly rethinking, how can I speak honestly into the life of my husband or my wife in such a way that they are pushed toward Christ, not toward my attitude? Because if they invest too much into this one thing, there's going to be pain. There's going to be pain because Jesus will come and he will make war against it and we don't want that to happen. Now let me offer you an encouragement. Um... This is the exception, not the rule. The church of Jesus Christ, for the most part, will honor Christ if given the opportunity. People who the Spirit of God is at work with in their lives will seek to honor Christ given the opportunity. And confronting the teachings of Balaam and Nicolaitans, the whole point of that is to give them an opportunity. It is not to control, it is not to lead, it is not to break down. It's... it's to give people an opportunity to let the Spirit of God work in their lives so that Jesus can be glorified. And your, parent, your children will be thankful to you for you resisting them when they make decisions that don't bring glory to God. They won't be thankful right away. but They will be eventually. And your church will be thankful for those who resist the teachings of Balaam and Nicolaitans. And your parents, kids will be thankful for the moments when you say to them, that is not of Christ. And say it the right way, but say it. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we look to, as we have looked to your word and we have um, prayerfully and hopefully seen the truth of your word, we recognize that we live in a world that has multiple influences and multiple powers and it is very easy for us to be distracted. We have a cultural ADD. Father, help us as the church that takes the name of Jesus and declares his faith in a world. Help us to stay true to him as we have been, as we long to be, as we strive to be. Father, I thank you for the elders. I thank you for the men who lead their homes, the wives and, and mothers who lead their homes. Lord, the single people, the families, the grandparents, everyone who is striving to follow Christ. Lord, help us to stay true to the course and encourage us along the way. In Jesus' name.